Well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18 is where we'll be in just a minute. And I have to tell you that I love this time of year because of all the incredible opportunities that our children and our students have to connect with Christ. Uh, We had an amazing Make Waves VBS uh, here at Bachelor Creek this past week. We had 198 kids, uh, a part of VBS this week, 94 volunteers, and our kids crushed their goal of raising $1,000. The kids raised $3,157 for Nan Hamill and Casas Por Cristo, which is incredible. And what I'd like to do is, if you served at VBS this past week, that means if you were a small group leader, you helped out with registration or crafts or whatever, if you served at VBS this week, would you go ahead and stand? All of you who helped out at VBS this week. Let's give our volunteers a hand. Uh, We are so thankful for the role you played in helping this be an awesome, awesome week. I also want to let you know that right now, currently, we have a group of, I think, over 40 uh, middle school students and leaders who are at CIY Mix right now in southern Indiana, an incredible uh, conference. Uh, Later, in a couple of weeks, we have a group of uh, high school students going to CIY Move, and then in early July, we've got our third through fifth graders that are going to Camp Kid Jam. So just an awesome time this summer for kids and students uh, to grow in their faith in Christ, and what I wanna do before we dive in today is I just wanna spend some time praying for our middle school students that they would have a life-changing week at CIY Mix. So would you pray with me? God, right now we wanna lift up our middle school students. God, I, I pray that, that right now that they would be impacted by what Jesus has done for them. God, I pray that over the course of the next few days, through the messages that they hear, through their times of worship, God, through the conversations that that they have, God, I pray that they would would meet you. And God, I pray that you would do a good work in their life. God, I pray that they would come back changed, that they would engage as kingdom workers and, and they would take what they've learned and they would share it with their friends and they would share it with their family and, and that they would be a changed people. And God, that their faith would inspire our own. God, I pray for the leaders this week, that they would pour themselves into those students, that their lives would be changed too. God, we give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, all that talk about kids, and I'll be the first to tell you that working with kids is not a strength of mine. I know that uh, a lot of you are gifted that way, and I am so thankful for that. I hope that you're leaning into that calling and you're leaning into that giftedness. But one of the things that I am very much aware of is that I need to surround myself with young people. I need to stay connected with the younger generation because I have so much that I can learn from them. One of my favorite qualities of kids and students is their ruthless honesty. I got to see this this ability of, of saying it like it is by helping out with Little League Baseball this year. Uh... Our coaches pitch team, we, we consist of six to eight-year-olds. Uh, we finished up the regular season yesterday. We're 14 and 0. Um, 14 and 0, 14 losses and zero wins, okay? <laughs> but after a season like that, you gotta put a positive spin on it. Um, so we ended the season winless, and uh, it, it's, it's been a long, long year. But I wanna share with you some real true statements that these kids have said to me over the course of the season. 
One kid said, there's no way we're winning this game. We're going to get run ruled, aren't we? Another kid straight up said, I don't want de- to be here. My dad made me come. Another kid said, I'd rather be at home playing video games. A few games ago, we were sitting in the dugout, and um, some of the kids were trying to guess how old I was. And one of the kid goes, I think you're probably 60. He goes, you've got some gray hair in your beard. My grandpa's 60, and he has a gray beard. We were down 11 to 1 at the time, and I just didn't have the emotional energy to engage in this conversation, so I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, yeah, you're pretty close. You know, middle school students and high school students also have this way of saying it how it is. I think they have a way of of putting into words things that adults have learned to either filter or suppress or ignore. And because of this ability, I've learned a lot about human relationships with God through them, through their honesty. A few years ago, I was leading a a guy's small group at CIY Move. Uh, with some high school students. And during one of our conversations, I, we asked the students to uh, share an image with the group that most reminded them of God. And we told them that they were safe for this evening to kind of set aside their correct theology and just speak what they most deeply felt. So the first student raised his hand and he said that the image that they most honestly felt resembled their relationship with God in that particular season of life was as Santa Claus. But this Santa didn't know how to read English. And so they write to him, but he can't understand them. He can apparently read other languages, but not theirs. And aside from Santa, the image that most resonated with students was a vending machine. Uh, One student said, yeah, it's like you put your money in, and then it eats your money, and you walk away with nothing. And some of the students began to laugh in agreement. Another student said, well, actually, God is like the vending machines at school where some of them work and others don't. You just don't know what'll work, so it's kind of disappointing. And as I sat there and listened, I noticed that that I wanted to begin to correct their theology, but instead I felt compelled just to deeply listen to the students and learn from what they were expressing. And while the students that evening were using images to create metaphors for God, They were expressing honest and authentic feelings and experiences of God that you and I can often suppress or ignore. Deep feelings like maybe God's not dependable, that God must not care that much about me, that a relationship with God is conditional and transactional, that the God we learn about in church isn't actually the God that we experience in everyday life. And as that week ended and we drove home, I was thankful that the students express their honest experiences. But it made me stop and think. If I allow myself to put aside all the the good beliefs I have about God, and if I were to to acknowledge how I felt in some seasons, some moments in my life, whether it was due to sin or due to disappointment or some failures and wounds, there there have been times where I too have felt like God was more like a vending machine. Or maybe he worked or maybe it didn't work than a father that I was actually in a speaking relationship with. And I suspect that if we allow ourselves, without guilt and shame, to acknowledge our wounds, our heartaches, our disappointments, and our failures, we too have tiny fissions or large cracks in our view of God. So there's this tension that I want us to hold today. 
we have this reality of our wounds, our, our grief, our broken world, but we also have this, this truth of this passage that we're going to look at. We have the truth of God's character and this call for us to trust him. And holding this intention isn't easy, but I believe with all of my heart that it's required for us to engage in the greatest gift that we've been offered, life with God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 18. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Luke 18, we're going to begin in verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Unlike many passages in Scripture where we have to work really hard to dissect to understand what it's saying, uh, this one is very straightforward. And in fact, chapter 18, verse 1 begins, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So, so the main point just jumps out right here. As followers of Jesus, we are called to pray and never give up. I believe that Dallas Willard captures the heart of what it means to pray and never give up when he defines prayer this way. That prayer is talking to God about what we're doing together. And I love this definition because it captures the relational, ongoing nature of prayer. Prayer isn't limited to a quiet time in the morning, but instead it's our continual talking to God as we go about our day. And while the heart of prayer is simply talking to God, not in eloquent or fancy words, but in our ongoing thoughts throughout the day, there are hindrances that cause this to not be a reality for a lot of us. Now, some of these hindrances are distractions, like our cell phones, busyness, stress. But the hindrance that I want to focus on today is the tension that those students honestly put into words. Why pray when God feels more like a broken vending machine that takes your money? Or to translate the metaphor, how are we to persist in praying to God when all the data points around you remain disheartening? Now, this isn't a bad question to ask. This is a vital question to wrestle with because if you aren't asking it in this season of life, I know that a family member or a friend is and they need encouragement. And I believe that Jesus valued this question so much that this parable is birthed out of it. Jesus is talking to his disciples, his friends. And what he knows, but they don't yet, is that this teaching will be one of his last before he dies. And so this context is essential to understanding the deeper heart behind this parable. It's been said that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. 
And so Jesus is going to use their secular world to communicate spiritual truths. In light of the suffering that he knows is coming, what is it about prayer that he needs them and us today to know? Verse 2. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Jesus is telling a story and using characters and circumstances that his disciples would quickly understand in their cultural context. In this story, we see two main characters arise, a judge and a widow. Let's start, first of all, with the widow. Now, listeners would have understood when Jesus said widow that he was speaking of somebody who represents powerlessness and oppression. Ordinarily, during that time in the Middle East, women didn't go to court. So our first character in the story has all the odds stacked against her. She's oppressed, she has an adversary, and she's dealing with a corrupt judge. Yet we see that this judge gives her justice. Because down in verse 5, the unjust judge says, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice. Today's translation She's given me a headache. Now, I don't know what comes to mind for you, but when I think about how much this widow must have had to pester this judge, I picture my boys when they want baseball cards. Both of our boys are really into collecting uh, trading cards right now. And when they want something, they want it right now. And so oftentimes what will happen is Caleb will go to his mom and say, hey, can we go to Walmart to buy some cards? And often the response is, yes, but not right now. Well, that's not the answer that he wants. So he'll state his case, he'll start to whine a little bit, and when he feels like he isn't getting anywhere, then he comes to me. Parents, does this ever happen in your house? Where one kid wants something and and they don't get the answer that they're looking for, so then they're gonna try their luck on the other parent? Now you've you've probably figured this out, but that's why the key question is, what did your mother say, right? You want to make sure that you're on the same page. So he comes to me. He asks if we can go to the store to buy some baseball cards. And I ask, what did your mother say? He doesn't like that question. So my response is, not right now. And then he gives reasons why it has to be right now, which honestly are unconvincing and not any good. But in his mind, it has to be right now. But I'm not budging. So then he sends his brother in to try to, try to take it from a different angle. And after that doesn't work, Caleb circles back. He's even more relentless this time. And guess what happens? After a while, he's so persistent that it's like, okay, fine, let's go. Let's just, let's just go. So is Jesus saying, like the widow and like the card-collecting kid, annoy your Father in heaven to get what you want? Is that what Jesus is saying? Because many people have read this passage to mean we too must ask God many, many times And then he might give me what I want. And while the widow's consistency, courage, and confidence are certainly admirable, there's something more for us here. This style of parable is called a how much more story. Jesus is using an example that contrasts our spiritual reality as children of God. Meaning that if this oppressed all odds stacked against her widow receive justice, then how much more are you, a child of God, 
going to be heard and responded to by your heavenly Father. In our physical realm, there are people that have their voices and their injustices oppressed. In the spiritual realm, Jesus is teaching us that you and I, we are not a powerless widow, but rather as followers of Jesus, we are children of the creator of the universe. We are given spiritual authority and power to bring transformation to this world. We can boldly approach our, our Father in heaven in prayer. And so I want to ask you, how do you view yourself in relationship to God? I think for many of us, we view ourselves as a spiritual NARP, a NARP, N-A-R-P. Let me explain. I was first introduced to the term NARP my freshman year in college. I was visiting one of my friends who attended a large state school, and he was showing me around campus. And he pointed to a building on his left, and he said, that's the athlete's dorm over there. And then he turned, he, he pointed to the right, and he says, I live over there in a NARP dorm. And he informed me that anyone who was not in the college athletic community is called a NARP, a non-athletic regular person, N-A-R-P. And though I've played my fair share of sports in life, I like to run, I like to stay active, compared to the high-level college athletic community, I am most certainly a NARP. I realized this fate late in high school when I was playing basketball. We were playing in an AAU tournament, and the team we played against was full of high-level future D1 athletes. All it took was two minutes of game time for me to realize that they were on a completely different level. Those players were taller, they were faster, they were stronger, they could jump higher. On defense, they were in every passing lane. On offense, they would, they would blow right past me. Now, <laughs> I can't tell you how thankful I am that social media wasn't around when I played because I got dunked on multiple times. I, I just, I didn't have the skills or the abilities to keep up with these super athletes. And sometimes we can have this view of people in the church we, we see people, we, we see people as the spiritually elite. We see them as the spiritual jocks, and, and we think that they're capable of things that us NARPs simply are incapable of. We see the way that they pray, and we think that there's no way that, that God would respond to me like that. We see people and we go, they've got gifts, they've got abilities that I simply will never have access to. But this isn't the view of Jesus. Listen, all of us are called to pray, no matter how old you are, no matter your age, no matter how long you've been to church, no matter if you've left the church and you've come back, no matter if your prayer is one word, help, or whether it's a long prayer of you pouring your heart out to God, we are all called to persist in prayer because we all have the power and authority to be heard by God. Don't you dare think less of yourself than God thinks of you. I got to witness a beautiful example of a kid at our church trusting in the power of his voice before an almighty God. In a moment of concern, he courageously prayed for his friend who had suffered a pretty bad injury. His pure words of God, heal my friend. God, help him to know everything is going to be okay. That prayer stuck with me because it showed me a beautiful example of the confidence of a child of God honestly sharing his heart to his heavenly Father. 
He wasn't trying to bend God's arm by fancy, long prayers with the perfect word. But instead, he approached God as a son who knew he had the powerful ability to pray. He wasn't held back by some idea that prayer is for the spiritually elite that God favors. He wasn't helpless and powerless in that situation. Rather, he embraced his identity as a co-laborer and bringing the kingdom to earth through prayer. Now that we've explored that we are children of God with the power to pray, we need to turn to the character of the judge to understand who it is that we're praying to. Verse four. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So the second main character we see is the judge. Who is this man? He is deeply unjust, uncaring, and unmovable. How do we know this? We see in verse two that he doesn't fear God, meaning that he has no moral authority that he's moved by. He also didn't care what people thought, which can be translated as he's not ashamed before people. In the honor-shame society that he's in, one of the sharpest criticisms to be said about a person is that they do not feel shame. He's hurting a widow, and he should be shamed, but he doesn't. In verse 4, we see that he even confirms that the judgment against his character is correct. So, is this passage saying that God is also stingy with compassion on those who are hurting? No, absolutely not. Just like the widow, if this unjust judge granted this unlikely request, how much more will God, who's nothing at all like this judge, hear the prayers of his children? God's not like this judge at all. You say, how so? He's not unmoved by your cries. He's not withholding goodness from you. He's not biased toward good behavior. He's not tracking how many days you've been to church and judging you. And so I ask again, who is he? And how do we know? As you and I wrestle with this deep heart question, I'm in awe of what takes place not long after. Shortly after this teaching, we see the Son of God, Jesus, live out these words to pray and never give up. We see this when he goes to his his heavenly Father asking if there's any way besides dying on the cross, if this cup can be taken away from me. He's burned to the point of sweating blood. In deep agony, he's able to bring his whole self to his Father. How did Christ muster up the strength to accept the gut-wrenching reality of God's will in that moment? How did he preserve in prayer when all the data points pointed to God seeing me more like a harsh, unmoving judge? It's because of this. Jesus acted on a foundational and key truth. Jesus knew that his prayers were being received not by a cruel judge, but by a deeply compassionate and caring father. Despite what was going to come, he pressed on with a deep assurance of who he was praying to. He knew that he was speaking to a father who was listening. He knew that he was speaking to a father who wasn't ignoring him. 
He knew that he was speaking to a good, good God who wouldn't let his son's prayers go unheard and ignored. Yet the challenge that many of us will face as we continue to choose to follow Jesus is clinging with all of our strength to the unchanging, unconditional truth that we pray to a Father in heaven who deeply cares for us. And while I can't explain why some things happen and other things don't happen in life, I know it's not because God doesn't care about us. But is God caring enough to confidently say that he's good and a powerful God worthy of praying to? Is that enough? No. I argue that there's more. There's one last vital piece besides the love of the Father that strengthens believers to persist in prayer that we learn from this parable. A characteristic so opposite of the unjust judge that we can't miss it. I believe that it's so transformative that it's the very characteristic that can sustain us on our darkest days and can also create a joy in us so rich that it blesses others. Don't miss this. Verse six. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Christ is clear. The unjust judge is nothing like God because God is a just God. And he will see that his children get justice. You say, how's this connected to prayer? Well, let's first acknowledge that when we pray, Oftentimes, we're praying because we feel that something isn't right, and we're appealing to God to his sense of justice, that he would bring justice and order to the world by eliminating evil and sin and anything that pulls us from goodness. We desire a God who is just, a world that's just, and yet it's far too easy for us to think of all these examples of when God doesn't appear to be just. I call this tendency my inner lawyer. That this inner lawyer rages at the amount of unfair realities that people are currently battling. We love the sentiment of being a child of God, that we pray to a caring and just God, but what about all the ways in life where where this doesn't seem to align with the reality that, that we currently experience? Like when you get the phone call from the doctor, when you don't get the job, when that significant relationship is marked by betrayal, when you don't get accepted to your dream college, when the anxiety and depression never seem to go away. How do we reconcile this chasm of brokenness that saturates our world and our lives while also confidently saying that God is caring and just and worthy of praying to? Jerry Sitzer, author of A Grace Disguised, he wrestled with this same need from more of God in light of his mother, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter dying in a car accident when they were hit by a drunk driver. Four years after losing three generations of women in his life, he reflected on his years of praying and he shares that he's ultimately come to this conclusion. He says, I've come to realize the greatest enemy we face is death itself. 
which claims everyone and everything. No miracle can ultimately save us from it. A miracle is only a temporary solution. We really need more than a miracle. The first time I read this quote, I was, I was deeply shaken, yet comforted. Because while this is direct and blunt, sits are voices that what we need most is for God to promise us everlasting judgment, justice. If God answers our prayers to avoid pain and sickness in this world, and yet everything still ends in death and there's nothing else ahead, then God has not brought ultimate justice to the world he's created. He's just some sort of sick joke. Therefore, the ultimate fulfillment of what we long for in our hearts, the greatest need that you and I have, is justice. A justice that's so powerful that it defeats our ultimate enemy of death itself. A justice that cannot be reversed. A justice that cannot be taken from us. A justice that restores things and makes things right. This justice is attained by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where God himself, because he loves you, displays his character of care and justice by dying on a cross to then raise again, defeating the power of death over our lives. Friends, because of Christ, death no longer has the final word. Life does. Life as it was intended to be. The glorious reality that all tears, all pain, all suffering will be swallowed up into everlasting life and pure joy. It's the resurrection that assures us of God's justice. It's the resurrection hope that sustains us when our present reality is disheartening. Because we know how the story ends. And we know who our Father is. So how is God's justice connected to prayer? Because of the resurrection, we can pray and never give up, knowing that every prayer we pray will never be in vain. Life will win. So what's the spiritual reality that Christ is inviting his disciples and each of us to in the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge? It's that unlike the widow and the judge, as followers of Jesus, we can confidently persist in prayer, knowing that we pray to a Father who is caring and just, guaranteeing that life will have the final word. Jesus ends with a question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This question can feel heavy. However, there is grace upon grace, upon grace. When this question of keeping your faith in God feels heavy, take heart that our faith in Christ isn't meant to be done in isolation by our own strength, but with a community of believers. Jerry Sitzer, who I mentioned before, he explained how after his horrible loss, he didn't have the emotional energy to verbally pray or sing at church. However, he continued to show up every Sunday, and he deeply believed that he was a part of a church that was holding on to faith for him. So after years of healing and years of processing, when he comes to church, he says that he now chooses to sing extra loud for the belief that he's singing for at least five friends in the room who cannot sing at that moment. What a remarkable, gracious, communal view of faith. 
And if that describes you today, I want you to know that you have a place here. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, may we confidently never give up in prayer, knowing that we pray to a Father who is caring and just, seeing that life will have the final word. May we do this like the young boy who confidently simply shared his heart to God. No matter how many words, as we walk into our work, as we order our coffees, as we talk with our families, let us live lives saturated with prayer. Like Christ, who in his agony rested deeply in the unshakable truth that the Father deeply cares. So that when storm comes, when disappointments rage, we know that we're not abandoned. And like Jerry Sitzer, who ultimately found that his greatest, most ultimate need was resurrection. May we live with the assurance that life has the final word through the destruction of death and the resurrection of Christ and his followers. And lastly, may we confidently persist in prayer as a church family. When we see a brother or sister who needs encouragement, may we show the care of the Father to them in their time of need. May we be a church today that sings on behalf of our community who needs the hope of resurrection life. Let's join in prayer together. God, right now we pray for those who are having a hard time praying. God, we pray for those who need the hope of the resurrection. We pray as those who belong to you, those who are your children. God, I pray that we would be a people who pray and never give up because we know that death does not have the final word, but we serve a risen Savior who defeated death once and for all, so we can pray with eager anticipation, knowing that you hear us. You don't ignore our cries for help. But God, you work, you hear, you move. God, help us to be a people of prayer. We know that when we talk with you, we are, we are talking with a God who is caring. We're talking with a God who is just. And God, that you are ultimately bringing justice to earth. Thank you, God. Help us to be a praying people, a persevering pe people, a never-give-up kind of praying people. In Jesus' name, amen.